paralytic had to hear, understand, and he had to do it. He had to obey it. He had to act on what Jesus told him to do. But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then turns to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now this is stunning. If we think for just a moment about what just happened, what just transpired, this is absolutely stunning. Because they are disbelie- the Pharisees are disbelieving in their hearts, right? They're disbelieving what Jesus is saying and who these people are thinking he is. Now, doubt of the Lord's Christ is wicked. It is wickedness to doubt the Lord's Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving, unbelieving heart. So doubting the Lord's Christ is wickedness and it's evil. And our God, Jesus, takes their evil and makes it the occasion to healing this man. It's almost like Jesus wants it to play out like, was he really going to heal him until they started doubting in their hearts? I mean, I don't think that was the case. I mean, Jesus, Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew what he was going to do. But Jesus does it in such a way, he pronounces his sins forgiven, And then he confronts their wicked hearts who are doubting. And then he takes their wickedness as the occasion to turn around and then heal the man. Isn't that stunning? That the man got new legs, in essence, because of their doubt of Jesus. God is the God who takes evil and uses it for good, right? We know that the scriptures tell us that emphatically. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that for those who are called according to His purpose, that all things work together for our good. So we know that God is the God who doesn't just overcome evil. He instead takes it and uses it for good. Here He even uses evil thoughts. Isn't that amazing? He even uses evil, unbelieving, doubting thoughts as the occasion to restore this man back to health. But why do you suppose that Jesus chose to pronounce forgiveness upon the man first? Why do you suppose Jesus did it that way? Isn't it interesting that he did it like that? Isn't it interesting that he first pronounced his sins forgiven? He first confers forgiveness upon this man he now calls son. And only then afterwards does he then pronounce the healing upon him. Isn't that interesting? Well, I think that one thing would be absolutely sure this, that had Jesus healed him first, what would have happened in the room? Wouldn't there have been a clamor? Had Jesus told the man to to rise, stand up and walk, and he did, Can you imagine the room, the gasps, the shouts, the praise the Lord's? 
the man himself leaping and jumping and laughing. And then Jesus is going to preach preach this powerful spiritual truth after that. Jesus does this because he knows that if he healed him first, the truth of what he really wanted to say would have been lost in the clamor. Now, is it too much for us to look into that and just to see something? Just to see something that God's showing us. How it is that Jesus even, we could say, extends the man's misery, extends his paralysis even for a short time because he has a spiritual truth that's far more important. Can we see in that something of how God works all the time? Of how God works through sickness and suffering and trials and tribulations and difficulties because there's a far more important spiritual reality for us to learn? And can we see just even in the sequence that Jesus does things here, how he's saying the most important thing comes first so that it's not lost in the excitement of the physical healing. But his power, of course, knows no limit. He pronounces the man to be whole again, verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. All authority is given to him. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. What were the Pharisees? What was their reaction? I mean, a moment ago, they were disbelieving. Now this man walks out. They were all amazed. And of course, like all of Jesus' miracles, like every single one, this, the healing is immediate. It's not a process. There's no process of relearning his balance, of restrengthening his legs. There's no process of, of sort of walking and stumbling a little bit first. Rise, pick up your bed, go home. The healing is immediate as though he was never paralyzed. We don't know how long he was paralyzed. Maybe for years, maybe his whole life. But the healing is instant and immediate and complete. He gets up, he takes his bed and goes home. Now the last thing for us to see and then we'll be done is this. Just this, that the paralytic had to do what? He had to act on what Jesus said. Rise, take up your bed, go home. Three commands, three imperatives, three things that Jesus told him to do. The paralytic had to hear, understand, and he had to do it. He had to obey it. He had to move his legs. His brain had to tell his legs to move. He had to take his arms and push himself up and he had to stand up and he had to bend over and pick up his bed and he had to walk out the door. He had to act on what Jesus told him to do. So in his acting, let's imagine for just a moment what might have gone through his head. Because what did the paralytic just hear? He just heard Jesus tell everybody in the room what the most important religious leaders in Israel were thinking, and that's that this man can't do that. That's the last thing ringing in his ears, is Jesus himself saying, the people that you've been taught to respect and listen to your whole life, these religious leaders, they don't think this can be done. He had to hear that 
And his faith had to be stronger than their doubt. And he had to act upon that. Now, the point that I want to leave us with is this. Their doubt was something that his faith had to be stronger than. He had to overcome it. Do you know that all of us here in the room, do you know that our faith affects everybody else in the room? Do you know that that's how the body of Christ works? Do you know that just like a body whose heart is ill, is sick, that the rest of your body cannot go unaffected? In the same way, the faith of one in the body impacts everyone in the body. You do not live your faith in a bubble. You do not have your struggles with doubt and, and unbelief and then just take them home to yourself and struggle with them on your own. Your struggles, your faith growth, your faith struggles, all of those things are not in a bubble. They're in the body. And all of us have faith that impacts the faith of others in the body. In the body, our faith is either strengthening or weakening the faith of others around us. So we need to leave behind this notion that our individualistic Western modern culture has taught us is that you're just a a world unto yourself. You're just an island unto yourself. We need to reject that in the light of what the scriptures teach to us, that we are not an individual in the economy of God. We are the church. We are the body. And our faith impacts one another.